Well, thank you very much, uh, JB, for that introduction. Um, I think all of you could see from his remarks um, and his detailing of the establishment of the Institute, the really strong commitment, both personal and behalf of the, the whole university that uh, President Milliken brings to this uh, institute and to this engagement uh, with water for food issues. Um, and it's, it's uh, uh, really important for me when I saw that commitment um, shared not only by President Milliken but by all the top leadership of this university that I thought this is a serious uh, endeavor, this is an institute that I want to uh, be associated with. Um, so thanks, uh, President Milliken, for those uh, comments. Um, thanks also to all of you uh, for coming to this conference. Um, as President Milliken mentioned, uh, this is the largest gathering, um, and it's a real delight to see this room filled, um, and all of us, I think, are looking forward to engaging uh, with each other. Um, it's, um, for me, a pleasure to meet many people that I have come to know here in Nebraska, but also reconnecting with large numbers of people from different parts of the world with whom I've been associated in the past. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's just a fantastic gathering uh, in, in every single way. One of the things to uh, recognize um, in this Water for Food conference is that even though the issues that we are discussing um, uh, are very uh, uh, technical in some ways um, and certainly bring together a lot of years of practical experience and research and all that's coming out in the conference, but the backdrop um, is that the issues of water for food essentially transcend uh, so much of what is driving uh, the world today. Um, and many of the political issues that are in our headlines um, certainly have their roots uh, in water issues. And I think that's becoming more and more apparent. Of course, here in Nebraska, people recognize the political significance uh, of water. They've recognized it for many, many years, and it hits the headlines in things like the dispute over the Republican River. Uh, but if one goes further afield across the world and looks at recent headlines, whether they be in the Middle East uh, right now, the Arab Spring, or if you look uh, further afield to the conflicts in Darfur, at their root, um, they very frequently involve competition over scarce land and water resources. Um, so I think we have to recognize that the issues that we deal with um, manifest themselves in these larger political arenas um, that uh, govern so much of where we are today and where we will be heading. Um, so I'm going to talk uh, in our conference and let's see if I can get my presentation up. Not sure what I have to press to do that. Oh, okay, very good. Um, so the, uh, the outline of my talk, what I'm gonna talk about is uh, essentially two parts um, that I covered in 
uh, tried to cover in the title. Um, the first part is looking at the future of uh, water for food, um, some of the trends, uh, the importance of scale and context, which is something that I'm particularly uh, want to highlight, um, and also uh, provide you some illustrations um, from Nebraska um, and from India, where we recently visited. Um, and then I also have a second part, which is the addressing the challenge, telling you a little bit about uh, our institute um, and what uh, our vision is, um, some of our uh, ongoing programs um, and activities. Um, and in fact, and I hope to be able to sprinkle throughout my talk um, some of the uh, uh, really exciting things that are happening uh, on this campus. So that's what I want to do overall. Um, the uh, beauty of the name of the Institute, the Water for Food uh, uh, Institute, and the name of this conference, the Water for Food Conference, is that it brings into focus this equation, uh, the Water for Food equation. Um, and when one looks towards the future, it's good to look at what is happening on both sides of that equation. Uh, on the left-hand side, what's happening on the food uh, front, um, and on the right-hand side, what's happening on the uh, water front. <coughs> um, and when I say the water front, I mean in quantity terms, but also in quality terms, and in terms of variability uh, in time and space. Um, and I think what uh, even a quick examination of that shows is that all those trends seem to be pointing uh, in the same direction. The, uh, clearly, the driver behind much of the trends uh, on both fronts uh, is population growth. Um, population growth that uh, is happening primarily in those parts of the world uh, that have been uh, that are poorer um, and that have, in fact, suffered from underconsumption uh, over the last decades. Um, and so we're going to have population growth, particularly in those areas um, where we're going to have increasing demands on resources. And with population growth um, have, has also come one of the consequences of, uh, in fact, rising out of poverty. Um, and one of the good things that happens when people rise out of poverty is that there is a, an increase in caloric consumption. There is also a change in diets. Um, and so we have a, a, a uh, forces acting on food demand that are the combination of increases in population, changes in, in caloric uh, consumption, and changes in diet, and all that uh, produces stresses. Um, we also have a phenomenon uh, of increasing urbanization, uh, thirsty cities. On the right-hand side, we have uh, a graph depicting the increase in the number of cities in, uh, in Asia that are uh, over one million uh, inhabitants, and we're approaching over 150 uh, cities in South and Southeast Asia with over a million inhabitants. This uh, also should be uh, coupled with the recognition that those cities that 
already for some time have been over one million are just growing astronomically. And this came home to me very forcefully a couple of weeks ago when a group of us were in New Delhi, um, a city that I lived in in the 70s and early 80s when the population was about four, between four and five uh, million people. Well, when, when we were there last week, we were told that it's approaching 20 million. Um, and that's a fourfold growth. These are mega cities that you can just imagine uh, the impact that they require, uh, the, the resources that they require in terms of drinking water for the population, but it also in terms of industry and other requirements. So thirsty cities is certainly going to be a hugely important factor as we move forward. One backdrop in all of this is climate variability and change. Um, and I think we've got to recognize, um, th and this uh, diagram that I have, or this uh, table that I've put up there simply illustrates the fact that when you have changes in precipitation, they are amplified in terms of changes in, uh, in, in stream flow. Um, but that's just one aspect of what uh, the impact of climate variability and change is uh, on the water equation. <clears throat> One thing we have to recognize is that as a result of a global desire to mitigate the concerns, uh, the, the, uh, the, 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 the <coughs> appearance of climate change, um, steps are being taken, <coughs> such as biofuel production and so on, that have an impact uh, on water resources and, of course, an impact uh, on food production. Uh, but in addition, uh, on the adaptation side, we're going to see increasing amounts of variability uh, which, which uh, simply translate into uh, larger variability in both time and in space that have uh, a, an impact on the resource. So the, uh, the overall uh, conclusion of this is that the trends, as I was saying earlier, point in the same direction, uh, a worrisome direction uh, in terms of requiring uh, all of us uh, to essentially um, have more food but, uh, but with less water. Um, but that overall statement of more food with less water um, has to be taken into account very much in a context-specific way. Uh, because what I was talking about here are global trends, but what happens in any specific part of the world is entirely driven by those specific uh, conditions. Um, and I think those of uh, us in this room are, who are uh, familiar with the situation here in Nebraska recognize that what uh, the conditions you find in eastern Nebraska are radically different from those that you would find in western Nebraska. Um, and if that is true within this state, how true it is uh, globally. So when one looks at these global trends, one has to recognize that one is dealing with a situation which uh, uh, changes radically. Um, and it's not simply the physical conditions that change, uh, but the institutions are different. Um, and so. Uh, the kinds of technologies that one can apply in the institutions to resolve them are going to be very different in one place uh, and another. Um, and so the problems and the solutions uh, will differ from case to case. And that's simply uh, something that we have to be aware of uh, when we're dealing with the water for food equation. Cookie cutter approaches simply 
don't work. The other thing that uh, I think is perhaps less well recognized, although all of us at some level uh, see this, is that the water for food equation, the more water, uh, more food with less water imperative um, is also speci uh, scale specific. It manifests itself differently um, as one goes from scale to scale. And in this graph here, I've tried to illustrate some of the scales at which uh, the water for food equation um, can be examined. Um, and we have the household scale, the f farm scale, the community scale, the watershed scale, the basin scale, the state province scale, the national scale, the continental scale, the global scale, um, and I'm sure there are many more. But the important thing to recognize is that most of us in this room um, and in our work generally think at one scale, or maybe a couple. Um, if we're global policy makers, we tend to think primarily at the global scale. If we're producers, we tend to think at the farm scale. Um, and one of the beauties, I think, of this kind of conference, it brings together people who work at these different scales. Um, and to be able to understand different points of view, I think it's fundamentally important, for example, for global policy makers to come uh, to a conference like this, meet with producers, understand the, the kinds of struggles uh, that they are involved in, because in the end, you can't really solve a global issue if you don't understand what's happening um, at other levels. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is that um, there are subtle differences in the way one would express a water for food challenge uh, depending on the scale that one is dealing with. Uh, if you're dealing at the farm scale primarily you're be going to be thinking about how to be able to maximize yield, produce more food, um, while at the same time reducing uh, the, the amount of water that is, uh, that is applied. Primarily, if you're a farmer, you're the, um, a very big incentive there is going to be to reduce the cost of, uh, of supplying that water, either in energy costs or other costs. Um, but when one is dealing at a national scale, um, the, the problem will generally be phrased in terms of how can I ensure food security for my citizens uh, while at the same time minimizing the allocation of water to agriculture so that I can have more of my water resources, more of a country's water resources being allocated to other important national needs such as energy production or such as industrial uh, requirements or uh, in many countries meeting the basic human needs uh, of people um, and furthermore ensuring that we provide the water that the environment needs if we're going to be able to uh, sustain uh, ourselves over many generations. Um, so when one is looking at an issue from a national perspective, um, one would take into account broader questions uh, than uh, when you're looking at it from a, at a farm level. Um, similarly, when you're looking at this issue at a global level, the overall question is how can the world uh, feed itself uh, with a limited amount of fresh water resources, um, and that of course involves issues of trade and so on. Um, how can you 
be able to use the water in the places on the earth where you have the water to be able to supply uh, people with food um, elsewhere. Um, so these questions of scale I'd like to highlight here because they are so <coughs> much a part of the issue and in fact uh, very much a part uh, of, of our institute. The last thing I would say on this <coughs> is how our disciplines, uh, not only our, our work but our disciplines, tend to be scale specific. Um, and many of the really uh, real challenges of interdisciplinary work are crossing those scales. Um, because some disciplines tend to work very much uh, or tend to think very much um, at, uh, at a, say, at a, if you're in an agronomist, you tend to think on the farm scale. If you're an anthropologist, uh, sociologist, you tend to think on the uh, household scale. If you're a hydrologist, you tend to think on the basin scale. Um, and so much of the interdisciplinary work in the end uh, relates to crossing uh, scales. So let me, um, whoops, let me uh, illustrate uh, what I was just saying um, from uh, a few snippets of what is happening in Nebraska um, and elsewhere, and that at the same time will give you some sense of what uh, is going on that is exciting uh, at, at uh, the University of Nebraska at our institute. Um, and this is uh, the state of Nebraska that gives you a little bit uh, of a sense of where we are right here. Um, it's a state that has seen a very, very rapid increase uh, in irrigated agriculture over the last uh, several decades. Um, and it's important to, uh, to recognize um, that if you look at the total amount of irrigated acreage here in this state alone, um, it's more than any other country in the whole of the Americas except uh, for uh, Mexico. Um, we're talking about four million, close to four million hectares of irrigated uh, land here in Nebraska. So the amount of irrigation in Nebraska is considerable um, by global standards um, and it has been growing rapidly. So you can imagine the challenges that that entails. Um, there are 115,000 active irrigation wells um, and that uh, they're concentrated in particular parts of the state, but you can see them uh, from that graph. Um, and one of the things that uh, the university here has been doing under the leadership of uh, Professor Suat Irmak, uh, who is the interim director of the Nebraska Water Center, which is part of our institute, um, he has been pioneering a network uh, that brings together uh, producers um, and researchers. Uh, it's called the Nebraska Agricultural Water Management Netwo Network. And in a nutshell, uh, the objective here is to foster the adoption of newer water management technologies to help farmers to reduce uh, water withdrawal um, and also uh, energy consumption. Um, and it's it's very, very interesting because Nebraska is a state that, uh, in terms of the overall technologies, uh, adopted more efficient uh, irrigation technologies some time back. And uh, the, the landscape here, uh, as many of you know, is just uh, characterized by large center pivot irrigation. So there is efficient irrigation technology uh, in place. 
What has been the beauty of this network is that it is working on the second generation issue, which is how can you apply less water uh, using these center pivot irrigation systems. Um, so the fo focus has been primarily on soil moisture measurement and monitoring um, and providing farmers with the opportunity to be able to, mo to monitor soil moisture so that they can apply water to their crops when it's needed um, and not automatically and as a result of that uh, to reduce water uh, uh, withdrawal. Um, and essentially it's been focusing on these soil moisture measurement devices. Um, Here's an example, there's Professor uh, Irmak on the left, um, working with farmers on the right, installing these uh, sensors. Um, and the impacts have been really quite significant. The number of farmers in this network has increased year by year. Um, the area covered is now 500,000 uh, acres, which is very significant. Um, and if you multiply that by the uh, total amount of water reduction that has been achieved in each of these farms, the amount of, uh, of acre feet that is saved um, has been increasing year by year and is already in the millions of, of cubic meters. That's on the, uh, on the it's a 300 million uh, cubic meters of water saved over the entire area that is covered. Uh, so that's one example of the kind of uh, interesting thing that comes out from uh, the work of this university. But as I said earlier, one has to look at these things at different scales. Um, and uh, another important scale uh, to examine these issues, particularly when you're talking about groundwater management, uh, you can't... Um, that is something that cannot be dealt with by individual farmers themselves. It has to be dealt with at a, at a larger scale. The watershed provides an opportunity not only to uh, be able to manage the groundwater, but to be able to develop the groundwater and the surface water in an integrated way. Um, and one of the really uh, exciting pioneering steps that the state of Nebraska took uh, 40 years ago, and we're going to be celebrating that this, this uh, week, uh, was the establishment of the Natural Resource Districts. This is a landmark um, uh, event that happened in 1972. There are now 23 natural resource districts across the state. Um, these are local units of government, and everybody, many people in this room already know this, but I'm saying this primarily for those who are new to Nebraska. Um, the interesting thing is that it's not state, um, it's not federal, it's watersheds who govern uh, this, this, uh, this aspect of the natural resource. Um, and they govern it through a locally elected board of directors um, that has taxation authority, which means that uh, these natural resource districts have got a budget and they can uh, hire professional staff that can do the technical work that is needed uh, to be able to uh, manage the resource. Groundwater management is one of several responsibilities that they have, but it varies uh, from watershed to watershed because, as I mentioned earlier, watersheds in one part of the state will have very, very different uh, challenges from those in other parts of the state. Um, just a few weeks ago, I visited uh, one of the uh, uh, natural resource districts. I, I visited several, but the one here is, uh, is, is the upper big blue that is uh, indicated there. Um, and one of the challenges that they faced uh, in the late 70s was 
a concern about the declining water table. Um, and they took, uh, they, they used that opportunity to put in place uh, groundwater regulations with a long-term goal of making sure that uh, the trend did not continue, um, and also to encourage more efficient uh, use of water. Um, and what has happened uh, over time is that there has been, on the one hand, uh, increased amount of irrigation, but on the other hand, a much uh, more efficient uh, use of that resource, um, not only because of the fact that now we have more center pivots than before, but also, as I was saying earlier, um, uh, a, a more careful use of the water resource. Uh, the result is that, in fact, the groundwater tables in this particular uh, watershed have not decreased, but rather they have increased. Uh, so the trend that was c worrying people in the late 1970s that it was going to continue on down um, actually uh, reversed and went, uh, started going up. The important thing to recognize that what has essentially happened is that the groundwater table is more or less following rainfall patterns. Um, so nature is what is determining the level of the groundwater. It's not, uh, uh, it's not threatened additionally by over-exploitation uh, for, for, um, for the use of water for agriculture. So the measures that have been put in place have allowed uh, the additional stress of, uh, of irrigation to essentially be removed from that equation and the groundwater table in this particular area uh, is following uh, the rainfall patterns. Um, across the state there are areas where the, uh, the watershed, uh, the, the groundwater table has, uh, is better now than it was in the 70s. There are some parts that are worse off now than the 70s, but the overall news is a positive picture compared to what you find in other parts of the US and certainly with what you find in other parts of the world. There's, not to, there's much to be learned there. Let me switch completely to another part of the world uh, to give you an example of uh, a watershed uh, scale uh, initiative that also has the benefit of some historical perspective, and that is in India. Um, and uh, it's a, uh, an initiative that I had the good fortune to be associated with uh, in the late 70s. Um, it's, it's in the Shivalik Hills, which are the pre-Himalayan hills north of Delhi. Um, and uh, it was very interesting, this initiative, um, and that the, the, uh, depicts the area. This initiative started um, as a result of concerns uh, from urban dwellers in a, in a city that was downstream of this watershed about uh, siltation of their lake. Um, so it was an urban concern that uh, led researchers at the, the Central Soil and Water Conservation Institute to say, well, what's the cause of that siltation in the lake? They looked at the watershed and upstream they found a highly degraded watershed that was leading to most of the siltation problems that were occurring. Um, the uh, s solution that was thought of well was a check dam. Um, and so that check dam was built, um, and that's what we find, see there on the left. It's a fairly small check dam, but suddenly 
the villagers in this area recognized that they had a resource um, that could be used not simply to control siltation, but uh, could also be used to uh, convert their crops from from uh, highly uncertain rain-fed crops uh, to irrigated crops. Um, and they put in place a very interesting system for distributing the water equitably among the villages so that everybody had incentive uh, to, uh, to look after the check dam and more importantly to conserve the watershed because they wanted to make sure that that watershed continued to provide uh, their livelihood and income. On the right hand side you see some of the crops that uh, emerged from that. Um, and uh, the, uh, the results, I think, have been fairly dramatic. Um, we don't have data uh, year by year, um, but this is a, an initiative that has been studied over the years by the Center for Science and Environment in Delhi. Um, and you can see changes in household income being quite dramatic from that early start um, to, the, uh, to the present time. And these are very significant in an area that is, that is quite, quite poor. Um, the other thing that I think this illustrates is that um, this has been a very dynamic situation. Um, and when the check dam was built, uh, it led to uh, a rise in groundwater tables. And that, in fact, led to farmers thinking, okay, now that the groundwater is going up, why bother about the check dam? I can build a, a tube well and get my water that way. Um, and so it led to other pressures of this sort. But the interesting thing is that this initiative that started, as I said, uh, being very much downstream driven in the end, uh, took on a life of its own when it was recognized as being fundamentally important to the lives and livelihoods of the people in that area. So context uh, matters em enormously, um, as you will see what from these very, very different experiences uh, in India and in Nebraska. Let me then turn to uh, closer to home, um, the second part of the talk, which is uh, the Robert B. Doherty Water for Food Institute, what it is that we can offer, um, what's our original, what's our vision, um, and what are some of the things that are going on. Um, hopefully in the first part of my talk, I've given you already some examples of the really exciting things that are happening here. Um, but when I first came to uh, Nebraska last year to talk about this uh, institute and my possible association, I was struck by the fact that um, we had here um, a real potential uh, of creating an institution that would be a, an exciting new entry into the field, but building on significant experience. Um, and one of the important uh, Parts of that, of course, is the state of Nebraska itself. Uh, it's a state with a very, very, it's a very uh, important uh, food producer, uh, both nationally and globally. But it also has major river systems um, and aquifers uh, that uh, entail all kinds of issues of management, conjunctive use, integrated water management. Um, but a track record of innovation, as I was illustrating uh, earlier, that is a track record of innovation that comes from farmers, it comes from uh, wat watersheds, the natural resource districts, and from state agencies. So at these different levels, you have an interest uh, in innovation, which in the end, that's what a research institution uh, should be all about. 
The other thing I was struck uh, by is that we have a unique uh, natural laboratory um, with a situation uh, that is in a fairly short driving distance from Lincoln, remarkably different in terms of the uh, uh, conditions. Um, just two variables that change dramatically are elevation. Uh, elevation increases significantly as you go uh, from here towards the west, uh, but rainfall decreases significantly as you go from here towards the west. Um, and so you have very different agroecological regions uh, within a very short uh, driving distance. Um, and then the third factor, um, and perhaps the most important, is that here at the university you had a land-grant university that essentially brings together practice uh, and, uh, and, and, and research. Uh, it connects research with practice uh, with a huge and long track record of engagement in water for food issues, both in the state um, and increasingly globally. Um, and interdisciplinary, you have people from the water, from the water sciences, of course, as you'd expect, um, hydrologists, groundwater experts, uh, and so on. You have people from the agricultural sciences, very, very strong track record of experience there. A very uh, strong interest in the social sciences that spans across several schools um, and in the information sciences, uh, increasingly something that this, in this university uh, is highlighting. Um, and I should emphasize that some of the, the examples that I was giving earlier, um, the one on the network here in Nebraska bringing together researchers and farmers, much of what is happening there is on the information, the better use of information uh, to manage water. Um, so this gives you an example of the wide range of, uh, of uh, disciplines that the university has. I should emphasize also a very important school of public health with an increasing interest in these uh, questions. So all of that, uh, when I came here, um, just brought home to me what a fantastic resource we have here in terms of building uh, an exciting new institute. Um, as uh, President Millikan was uh, earlier emphasized, what made it all happening, happen, what made it all possible was the gift in April of 2010, a $50 million uh, gift uh, from the Robert Dougherty Foundation that enabled uh, this to take off, and you all know and recognize how important that kind of a gift can be. Um, the vision uh, that was there right from the beginning and still is Absolutely a part of the vision is an institute based on uh, a, a three-legged stool of research, education, and policy advice. Uh, the three are absolutely fundamental, um, and, and it's the combination of the three that will make this institute uh, uh, really add value. Um, its focus is on the efficient use of water, the efficient and effective use of water. Um, but a particularly emphasis on the, on the water for food equation, as I was saying earlier, um, and on sustainability, because when we talk about uh, future as well as current generations, the imperative there is sustainability. Um, so that's the vision that uh, brought us all together. Um, our focus, and that is uh, highlighted by the theme of this conference, is on uh, both rain-fed and irrigated agriculture. We want to 
highlight that these issues of improving the use of water for food production um, are not simply issues of irrigation. Rain-fed agriculture is as vitally important um, as, as irrigated agriculture, um, and that's why we chose as this uh, year's theme the green water and blue water paradigm, um, and we're just delighted that uh, Marlene Falkenmark herself is here to uh, share her experience and wisdom on that topic. Um, we have an overarching theme, uh, which is more food with less water, um, and we find, uh, we feel that having an overarching theme can inspire and galvanize everyone's work, uh, not only those who are directly associ associated with the Institute, but the entire uh, university. Um, so we want to have a, a tent, for want of a better word, that is large enough uh, to encompass all the relevant disciplines of the, uh, of the university in which we have strength, um, but a, a focus that is sharp enough to distinguish us uh, from others. Uh, we want to do, uh, address this theme at various spatial scales, um, so that we don't want to be limited only to the farm scale, but we believe we have something to contribute at various scales. And we want to deal with these issues in various contexts. Of course, here in Nebraska, uh, very importantly, but also in various different parts of the world. And the trip that we made to uh, India last week was an important part of that global uh, engagement. And as I was emphasizing earlier, a program uh, that encompasses research, education, and policy analysis. We uh, view ourselves as a distributed university, uh, which means that we're not going to be uh, uh, a group of scientists housed uh, uh, in, in one place, and, and that would be it. Our view is really a distributed university across all the affiliated faculty working on water and food issues across uh, the four campuses of the university. Uh, so this concept of a distributed university uh, is one that is myself, uh, that I believe in very, very strongly. Um, it has its challenges because sometimes uh, achieving critical mass and interdisciplinary research uh, when you have such a distributed university um, has problems in itself and that's why we believe that in the end we have to have joint projects that bring people together um, or around a common a common theme. Um, and clearly in all of this, the question of partnerships is going to be vital. As President Minikan emphasized earlier, we can't hope uh, to, uh, to address these issues uh, on our own, nor should we. Um, there are very, very important partners out there that we are reaching out to. Um, and this conference is in fact a, a fantastic opportunity to reach out to many current uh, and potential partners. Um, let me end with just one example of what I think uh, crystallizes um, much of what we think this institute can do. It's an example that uh, brings together different scales from the farm to the global, um, but particularly emphasizes uh, the need for research to support evidence-based uh, policymaking. And that's the, uh, what we call the crop yield Gap uh, and Water Productivity Atlas. It's spearheaded by Professor Ken Kassman. Um, I hope many of you will have an opportunity to meet with him and hear him talk about his work. Um, but the ambition is huge. It's to produce a comprehensive 
uh, global yield gap atlas within four years that would be publicly available to enable decision makers from policy makers uh, to industry to researchers uh, to be able to make use of that information. Um, and it's a very, very simple concept. Um, it's to be able to determine for every spot on the earth the yield potential on the one hand, the yield potential in one area, um, and compare that with the, uh, with the, the uh, uh, one, one, one has to recognize that one cannot achieve the yield potential itself, but what might be the 75 to 85% attainable yield, um, and compare that, in fact, to average farm yield. Um, and to think of yield potential both under irrigated and under rain-fed conditions. And having this kind of, of global atlas uh, brings together uh, so much of what we think we can add value to. It brings together the farm scale with the global scale. It, 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 it brings together the water and the food side of the equation. It e allows an examination of both rain-fed um, and irrigated uh, production going forward. Um, so let me just end on that note because it's a very good example of what we hope uh, this institute stands for and what we hope we can contribute uh, through this exciting new venture. Thank you very much for your attention.